Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm your host, Doug Stewart, and with me is Max Borders. Max is the executive director of Social Evolution, a nonprofit startup dedicated to liberating people and solving problems through innovation. Max is the author of After Collapse, The Social Singularity, and a new book, The Decentralist. Hey, Max, thanks for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure. You you were on our podcast almost 200 episodes ago. It would have been episode 97. So I guess 190-ish episodes or something, depending on what number this ends up being. So I know you and Jason, a mutual friend of ours, had a really good conversation on that episode. And I'm really looking forward to talking to you on this one. You've got, well, at least I know of three books out that have a very similar cover design. And and I really have, I've told you before offline, I like, I love your covers and I love <laughs> reading your books. But is there is there like a theme to the books that you're writing? Like, do you have sort of a, is this like a sort of unofficial series where you're going through topics? You know, is there some sort of coherent theme? Yeah, that's a really good question. I've tried to do it that way without making it seem like a series. In other words, each book is designed to be read in its own right and appreciated in its own right. But I also want readers to see that there is a connective tissue if you decided to get all of them. Yeah. I guess the biggest, most macro way of describing the way the books cohere is the through line of decentralization. That Mm, is, how do we break up power in pragmatic and appropriate ways such that we can get closer and closer to individual sovereignty, the kind that that I assume your listeners cherish. And of course, I know you and I do because we've talked about it before. You know, the decentralization through line is present throughout all the books. If you could describe in a sentence each, each book, the social singularity is about more about the systems level understanding. The after collapse is about the problems that come about with a highly centralized regime Mm -hmm. and what we can do about it. And then the third book is really a moral mirror to both the first two books. Like, okay, really an inward turn. Like, what does it mean to be an advocate of decentralization beyond just the systems level descriptions? So would you say it's in some way like internalizing, you know, how do I behave and act in this sort of post- centralist society, if that's what we're looking to create. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That seems like a good summary of the three books that you're doing. And, you know, what you're doing at Social Evolution, I think you should probably share a little bit about that because, I mean, your whole tagline about, you know, solving social problems through innovation, it sounds like something a tech startup would say, not a libertarian nonprofit or anarchist nonprofit, although they sort of are wed together, like that whole vibe. So yeah, tell us what you're doing there. You know, the first thing is, I think one can be more persuasive to certain audiences in describing or at least painting a picture of how how things can work and the kinds of implications for society that technology can bring rather than beating people over the head with, you know, a, some sort of principle or something like that, like mm-hmm. the non-aggression axiom. I mean, there, people are fond of doing that, and I think there's a cottage industry of it. So mm-hmm. I like to take a little bit of a different approach in some of my work, and that is to show 
particularly people on the left and right, that there are concentrations of power, whether that be economic power in the form of corporations or corporations that collude with the government and in terms of government power, which is obviously, you know, as Weber said, you know, a kind of monopoly on violence. So we really want to talk about how innovation can help break up those monopolies and or to a better way of putting it is at least oligopolies or concentrations of, of power, whether that be economic or, or state. Now, that's not to say that all concentrations of economic power are bad. And I, I'm sure your listeners will understand this to some degree. But there is, of course, the more we live in the situation where the rules give rise to a rigged game, where corporate power can buy political mm-hmm. authority, we start to get these unholy alliances between mm. corporations yeah. and the state that make for de facto fascism. And that's nothing new to your listeners, but it's new to a lot of people. So bringing that public choice lens in and talking about innovation and human creativity as the leading edge of social change can really be appealing to people on both the left and the right in the traditional political spectrum. Yeah, it sounds to me like there's a little bit of like making the state or centralized states obsolete. Like there's like a planned obsolescence, but it's not from the inside because they certainly don't want to be obsolete. It's from, you know, it's from the outside, from the grassroots, I guess you could say. That's absolutely right. And in fact, I I give a term to that in a couple of the books called subversive innovation. Mm. And you, when you came to Freedom Fest, you came to the Subversion Summit and they had asked me to, to participate, you know, to work to help them develop a track on this because they see the promise in really we tend to have these boxes. And, I, and by we, I, I just mean society writ large. We kind of have this idea that the only mechanisms of social change are the three Ps, politics, policy, and punditry. Hmm. You know, you can go cry your teardrop in the ocean every four years and expect the tide to turn. It never does, maybe by small degrees. But I think this uh, very... Butterfly effect doesn't seem to, doesn't seem to apply here, does it? <laughs> no, the, 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 the low resolution... Uh, yeah. Contest between warring tribes in a great election spectacle never usually does the job. I mean, yeah. most most of the economy is run by some sort of special interests, and the favors that accrue to them are really what drives a lot of change, and usually not for the better. So, this is really a way of of saying we can do better than politics and policy to make social change. We can do it by using creativity, entrepreneurship, and innovation, and that. That is another central thesis in all the books. Yeah, yeah. Do you have people who seem to engage with what you're doing and, and partner with what you're doing who are just, it's in their nature to innovate? Or is it more, are they educators? Like what kind of people are attracted to and, and sort of, you know, really reach out and partner with what you're doing? It's a mix. And it's, I've been consistently surprised. I've found common calls with a lot of people who you might say are on the traditional political left, which has surprised me. And I've become involved in projects that have what you might think of as sort of leftish aspirations, but amount to the creation of parallel systems that I believe will give rise to a more abundant society. For example, the uh, developers behind Holochain, for example, they're very egalitarian in their sensibilities. They're concerned about global warming, this and that. And yet the technology they're developing is really a mechanism of, you know, means of owning one's data such that power can't concentrate 
or that corporations can't be too extractive or that political power can't run roughshod over ordinary people who are weaker. And in, and so they're developing systems where we can have more people power by combining in peer-to-peer fashion our energies together. And that, that yeah. to me is extremely promising. But the other piece of it is I'd say, you know, I get more interest from people who are in the technology space than I do in the politics and policy space. And honestly, this is this has given me a bit of a hard time in running this nonprofit because, of course, it needs revenues in excess of costs. I've gotten more interest and support from, I'd say, by and large, from people who are, for example, involved in the cryptocurrency space mm-hmm. than I have people who are traditional funders of nonprofits who just really want to pay people to talk about how to lower taxes and reduce spending or, you know... Like the punditry sphere. Yeah, basically yeah. White paper, the white paper industrial complex, which is not doing <laughs> many people a hell of a lot of good. They may go deeper into telling you why you're right about what you believe, but they yeah. don't actually effectuate change. So I just think that there's a lot more promise in developing parallel systems that have these properties of subversive innovation. Yeah, so you're saying that the white paper has a supremacy and that needs to be abolished? Sort of, yeah. Certain <laughs> kinds of white papers, yeah. The kind that Cato puts in the hands of politicians who use it as a doorstop or, you know, <laughs> whatever. whatever yeah. politicians, politicians. It doesn't seem to be really helping us out very much. And, I, and I, I'm not surprised that you say that you, it seems like there's people more in the crypto space and the innovating, innovating tech space that is going to be attracted to what you're doing. What's interesting to me about that is you have people who you'd think that people who are more on the left, maybe maybe this is just my stereotype or maybe it's just the way that it's been the last few years especially, is that, that people on the left don't want decentralization. You know, what you described where there's like ownership in the hands of either workers or the people that's not concentrated, that's a problem that that Marxists are going to say is a problem with corporations. It's going to be a problem that libertarians say is a problem with the state. And yeah. so... I'm actually a little surprised to say here that like tech people who would probably seem more left-leaning would even care about decentralization. Yeah, and it did surprise me a little bit. And what I'm learning about this is that like many other sort of blanket labels, the left, like every other tribe, has its splinter factions. Some of the most interesting people I've been finding to read lately are either former leftists or Mm -hmm. continue to be on the left, but what I would call the dissident left. So for example, Glenn Greenwald is one. Even Michelle Bowens, who is not a super well-known figure like Glenn Greenwald, Michelle Bowens has really interesting ideas about in his peer-to-peer nonprofit where he talks about how, how we can better manage commons because there will be emergent structures in and what I think of is the sort of the meta picture of governance pluralism, right? We will have occasion to have certain kinds of things in the commons. This is certain kinds of resources in the commons that need a degree of ways to manage those commons that are outside of market forces. Hmm. And that's okay so long as there's a right of exit from any given system. And this is really tracks, I don't know if you have heard of or read Lynn Ostrom, the Nobel laureate who's since passed, but Mm -hmm. I think 2006, Eleanor Ostrom, she won the Nobel Prize for the Bloomington School, the Bloomington School of Political Economy. People don't realize that people on the left really love her, but she was actually almost anarchist. 
she and her husband, Vincent, were both anarchists, and they were concerned with how you can create a decentralized order that may include the evolutionary sort of local yeah. phenomena of commons management and also of, of market forces. And, and essentially, they coined the term, you know, polycentric law or polycentric order. If mm-hmm. they didn't coin that term, they really are some of the most robust scholars in understanding how to create a polycentric order. That's where I disagree in some sense with the libertarian. Okay. And I can go into that in a minute. Well, yeah, no, I I think that's where we're headed in the conversation here. And I want to sort of follow with what you just said there. It's like there's your book, The Social Singularity, which I guess if it was 300 or, or 200 episodes ago or so, it was a few years ago that I read. It was the first time that I was able to read a... I'm going to call it libertarian because I would say that you're at least libertarian adjacent. You're in that space. Sure. It was the first time I've read a libertarian, decentralized, anarchist-leaning book give a solid picture of what life could be like after we pass the centralized state. And it had to do with technology. So you have a technology that makes this possible. You know, Jonah Goldberg in Suicide of the West, he talks about the important thing with the American founding is that they wrote down their constitution, that there were constitutions before it, but they were like these living constitutions. It was just more like common law. It was not really like, it was just like understood, almost like oral tradition. And he said that one of the key things is that they wrote it down. Well, you can't write down a constitution if you don't have pen and ink, right? So there's a technology that made it possible for some sort of cohesion at the American founding. That's like, hey, here's our document. These are our founding principles. That technology isn't holding very well. And I wonder, is I actually had this question written down, but not leading in in the way I just did. I wonder if you and I could be even having this conversation before 2009. You know what I mean by that year is when we get into the age of crypto, it seems like you have all these libertarian and anarchists writing in the 70s and 80s, at least the ones I read. And it's just like, hey, it'd be nice if we had this and this is the best way to have a social order where it's nonviolent and consensual. But like, how do you even do that when you, you don't have the tech to do it? Well, I think, it's, I think that's an interesting point. I will draw your attention and your, your listeners' attention to a couple of books that really do anticipate some of this stuff before 2009. And I hope not to do that expensive and buying my damn books, but I guess I'm going to do that. That's <laughs> no, <it's> okay. Because <laughs> this stuff is just too much fun. One is called The Sovereign Individual. And I'm pretty sure that was written in the late 90s or somewhere in the 90s, The Sovereign Individual, written by two authors, Reese Mogg and forget the other author's name. But that really anticipated digital currencies, offshoring, you know, the idea that we can play jurisdictional arbitrage and maintain sovereignty, and that that would be technology-enabled. Even prior to that, even prior to that, we have, of course, I talked about the Bloomington School and and Vincent and Eleanor Ostrom. Their research is quite interesting in this regard. Not so much a focus on technological means, although still a focus on governance pluralism, the idea of breaking up power centers and, and having more experimentation at the local level so that we don't all go, this is the one true way. And I think libertarians tend to have a this is the one true way mentality, as do many, many political tribes. I do have a sense of, yeah, I think there is a one true way in economic reality and other, you know, kinds of mm-hmm. other kinds of realities. The human condition, our properties of being human are also things we have to respect and, and not deny. 
But the idea of governance pluralism is like, let's throw the spaghetti and see what sticks. And then we're going to have a little bit more of a set of equilibria based on based on the institutions people choose rather than the institutions that are imposed. And that is a huge cognitive leap for a lot of people, but one that has been made as far back as Paul-Emile Dupuis. You can find this online. His essay called Panarchy from 1860 is a really, really interesting exercise in thinking about governance pluralism. The idea that you could go that you could go to a registrar or a magistrate of some sort and just sign up for your political association. And then the political associations can resolve their disputes in court, which is a very common law oriented Mm -hmm. type thing. Now, let me just add one more thing about this. So I can give you examples going back in time. And these are the giants on which I stand as a writer. And I'm, I'm really trying to bring some of these ideas into the popular consciousness to the extent that I can. You know, just the idea of the consent of the governed that came out of the Declaration of Independence is an underappreciated idea. And people tend to think of that as democracy. But the consent of the governed in the Jeffersonian mind is not democracy. It can be a lot of different things. And and really, this sort of idea that you should be able to dismantle authority that isn't serving you or exit authorities that isn't mm-hmm aren't serving you, comes about in some of his later writings, such as that on the Ward Republics, which he discusses with a a correspondence partner. Now, really quickly, though, the thing that might make libertarians bristle is not that I'm turning away from, you know, the insights of Austrian economics and Hayekian thinking and Ludwig von Mises and things like Mm -hmm. this. Absolutely committed to that as a sort of substrate, like be careful with what you try to do with your experiments. However, what governance pluralism sort of acknowledges is that people might not want to exist in a monolithic system. So at the meta level, it's certainly very libertarian. You can enter and exit any system you like. You might want to live in a kibbutz and share property. You might want to form a Christian intentional community where everything is shared in common and people work together in common and you make sales to other mm-hmm. to other organizations or people you know, market transactions outside of your particular kibbutz organization or whatever. Yeah. But at the same time, that these are chosen civic associations and not everybody will want to choose the same sort of civic association. So yes, it's libertarian at the end of the day, but some libertarians think in terms of a very static understanding of the role of the state that I don't share. And that's probably the biggest difference. Yeah, I would say your libertarian minarchists are going to bristle at that more so, of course, because, I mean, that concept of people are going to be allowed to live in a communist state. Sorry, not state as in like nation like state, but state, state of existence. Yeah. If they want to. And there's nothing unlibertarian. I've, I've told people there's nothing unlibertarian. If you want socialism in the United States, if you get everybody to say yes, okay. But like, you know, as soon as someone says yes, like 20 minutes later, they're going to be like, wait, what did I get myself into? And they're going to say no. And now, now what do you do? Because now you're dealing with forcing people and you don't have the right of exit. But that whole idea, and Bob Murphy and chaos theory kind of introduced me to that, like, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago with this idea that like, oh, well, if that's the kind of life order that we want to see happen across the globe, then yeah, you're going to have leftists, you know, move to California and have a commune and only be over there in California doing their thing. I'm picking on Californians, but yeah. But, and, and the ones well, who want to move to Austin can move to Austin, right? Well, 
I'm trying to res- to, to, to <laughs> be selective about that, but I can't. Okay. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about human flourishing. I was thinking actually, you know, in preparation for, you know, this interview and, and sort of thinking through this concept of human flourishing, because I know a lot of libertarians want to make individual freedom like the ultimate good. And on the one hand, I'm thinking, well, okay, that's fine in a political order. But it's like, you know, I think in a lot of ways, I don't know of anybody who thinks that human flourishing isn't also some sort of ultimate or even close to ultimate good. And what occurred to me as I was like kind of thinking through this, I was like, huh, the term human flourishing, I don't know why I didn't catch it before, could refer to individual human flourishing, like me as a human, I'm flourishing or not. And that's a goal of mine, in which case a libertarian who's solely all about liberty that is what they're seeking is because that's their way of human flourishing is being free. But also there's that sort of, I don't want to call it collective sense, but more like humanity sense that human flourishing is some sort of ultimate goal. And you know, you write about this a little bit earlier in the book, The Decentralist, that there's a connection between human flourishing and meaning. And you know, you and I talked offline about, you know, making meaning out of our lives and how that's important to both of us. So I don't know if you wanted to kind of connect meaning and human flourishing together. And you can even follow up with your remarks on my little epiphany. I think that connection that you drew is correct. And the term I like to appeal to sometimes is oidaimonia, which is an Aristotelian term. Mm -hmm. It's not just a kind of hedonistic conception of happiness. It's much broader. It includes much more. And it's given to us by the Greeks. But it's, to my mind, we can develop a more universal understanding of what it means to be fulfilled. Now, there Mm -hmm. are cultures that, you know, seek to resist that. And I've heard, and I'd really like to talk to people who are sort of Chinese nationals about this, but that in China, that that's a less significant kind of idea, that that still Mm -hmm. can be too individualistic. But I don't see it as individualistic or collectivist at all, the idea of fulfillment, even if you derive some sort of of fulfillment from participating in something bigger in yourself that involves more than one person, you know, that involves a collective of some sort, as long as we're not running afoul of, you know, fallacies of hypostatization or, or collectivism of the sort where, you know, we know that it's not only immoral, but it's unworkable where central authorities are going to plan everybody's happiness for them. You know, that, that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. That's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about in terms of human flourishing is really being able to become involved with systems, cultures, and practices that allow us to live a better life by our own lights. And to live a, a good life by one's own lights might be focus on the interdependency among people, and it might focus on individuals' aspirations. Could be a combination of both of those things. And as we weave together in our communities of practice, we're going to find, I believe, the way we make meaning is engaging in meaning-making with others, Mm -hmm. as well as individual aspirations as we try to become our aspirational self. That is the more Western idea of I want to be a better person and I want to be happiness. I want to enjoy some measure of happiness as I undertake all of this stuff and the trade-offs of life. And that's really broad. And it, to some, it may seem overly broad. It's like if it's too broad, then it doesn't, then it, it can capture too many things. But the way I, the way I look at it is 
if we don't start with a substrate of some sort of substrate that, and this is really an influence from Chris Rufer, who's a mentor of mine. I mentioned him in the book. Mm -hmm. We don't start from some sort of substrate like that. Then we can't then acknowledge the fact of pluralism, which is the idea that we differ from one person to the next and from one community to the next in what it is that brings us fulfillment, whether as individuals or people who share common interests and common needs. So that that I tried to unpack in the book, and I hope you you saw that I that I did so unpack it. But that isn't going to be everybody's thing. You know, that a lot of people yeah. are going to say that are going to say that that's not the substrate. What do you do with people who like automatically include other people living a certain way in order for them to be happy? Most of the time, this is not always, but most of the time it seems like it's the left. Now, that's not really true because the right does it very much well. It's usually more like, I need you to not live a certain way for me to be happy. But I need you in my scheme in order for this society to make me be okay. That's sort of the feeling... Well, it's not even a feeling. That's sort of the observation that I see in both the left and the right. And maybe even in some libertarians who have a certain conception of what you know, probably more minarchist libertarians whom we share an affinity. I don't want to throw minarchists under the bus at all because I, I think, you know, that's leaps and bounds better than anything else except maybe anarchism. But the minarchists might be like, yeah, but we still need this for that. But again, back to the original part of the question is what do you do with and how do you order yourself in such a way that where your relationships with people who want to include you in their scheme, I'll just use it for the lack of a better phrase. How do you handle that? Yeah, I mean, pretty starkly. So, and we, we can get into philosophical depths on on moral theory and stuff like that, you know, at some other time. But this is, I put it in sort of a stark set of stark terms. And that is, first of all, I don't, I try not to, in this book, get into what you might call meta-ethical theories of whether or not morality exists as an ob- objective independent reality, where I would, I might tangle with Randians or I might tangle with Kantians mm-hmm. or tangle with right. any number of people. And I basically just, just say, look, I use what is known as instrumental rationality. It's like, look, let's just assume that you value human fulfillment, human flourishing, okay? And to the extent that you do, and I can persuade you that adopting certain principles allows you to get there more quickly to fulfillment or the project of fulfillment, which is an ongoing project as people live their lives, that this is going to break down at the level of two forces of social change that I identify, and you you may recall, and that is persuasion and coercion. There Mm -hmm. are no other modes of social change besides persuasion and coercion. None. And if any of your listeners can find one, I'm curious about that. If there is another vector of social change, there's all there's inaction, but that's that's the default position, right? So I don't mm-hmm. include that. So any action that can be taken that makes change must be through persuasion or coercion. And this is a very libertarian kind of way of thinking, right? But especially, you know, we mentioned earlier people who talk about the non-aggression principle and so on. And this is really it's like the way I, I sort of come to terms with this is to say, to the extent feasible. We never want to initiate violence for the purposes of bringing about social good. And to the extent that we cannot initiate violence to impose our conception of the good on others, then we have to 
figure out an institutional substrate that allows people to form communities around their conceptions mm-hmm. of the good and invite people into them. Yeah. And this is why in the 20th century, a free market in religion made the United States have a profound array of different sects, subsects, religions, and all of them managed to flourish mostly simultaneously because people according to their own conceptions of the good, could opt into these religious systems. And I'm just basically saying, let's extrapolate from that to our social systems. And in so doing, we might still be able to brandish our libertarian bona fides and live in an intentional community where 25 to 30 percent of income is put into a commons. And we decide Mm. collectively how, collectively and locally, how to distribute or disperse those funds through mutual aid. That's still free. You still have a right of exit and you still have a right of entry. And in that sense, it manages to be libertarian. And no other worldview that I'm aware of enjoys that that feature. In other words, you can be about redistribution and still be libertarian as long as you're not willing to impose your system with the threat of violence. So you can see how what I'm trying to paint a picture of here is simultaneously libertarian, but not necessarily libertarian in the sense of the one true way that governance ought to be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, it, it's clear that you do that. I mean, also, it, you know, you're kind of right that the books kind of go together. And, you know, with the social singularity, you can picture it that way. With the decentralist, you, you sort of make it that way. It was an interesting, and I don't say that in a like... I'm not in agreement here. I'm just saying like, I found it interesting that you used language to create another vision because you didn't use the language we're familiar with. You know, you, you, you put a libertarian, you give a libertarian a book that talks about anarchism and individuality and they're going to have this certain picture. And, you know, if you had sort of gone through your book, I'm looking at your book right here, and it's like you've gone through your book and take out those phrases and just used anarchism or something like that, you couldn't paint the same frame that you're doing, which doesn't, like I said, doesn't give rise to a vision that actually can seem workable. Because I guess in some ways, maybe I'm just, and again, I'm sort of talking off the top here. But like, in some ways, this whole idea of like an anarchist society just seems so far-fetched. But when you talk about it, Max, it makes (laughs) it seem somewhat, somewhat imminent, somewhat like within my grasp. Right. Like there's a way in which, at least in one area of my life or in one, you know, sector or vector of my relationships, that I can create a decentralized situation. Yes. Right. Yes. And, you know, in a lot of ways, there's our lives are more decentralized than a lot of people think. I mean, the state is really, really heavy handed in a lot of ways. But, you know, I don't handle financial disputes using the state. We use the credit card companies. Like there's all kinds of ways that this is already happening that we hopefully can appreciate. But, you know, talking about it in terms of the way that you are, yes, it certainly helps to give a picture of what that would look like. You know, um, it's, funny, so yeah. it's funny you mentioned that because some of the biggest pushback I always get is along these lines. And what I mean by that, you, you, you said something really important there, which is that normally when people are talking about anarchy, they don't know how to operationalize it. They're talking in pie in the sky terms. The way I try to describe this is always about how we operationalize it. And so the criticism I get with how one would operationalize anarchy, I call it asymptotic anarchy. I don't think I do in this book, but the idea is 
We're anarchists by disposition, and we're always moving in that direction, realizing that there are trade-offs along the way, right? So there's never any, like, there's no such thing as ideological purism, because we are always situated in time and live yeah. in these massive Leviathan states. We have to reckon with the fact of their existence. So what sort of trade-offs and innovations can we make to defang that power? Yeah. Rather than, let's just constitute in some constitutional moment this anarchist ideal, which is never going to happen. It can't yeah. happen, right? Yeah. So instead, it's like, how do we operationalize this by adopting new rule sets that allow people to, to self-segregate into sort of kind of yeah. cultural political tribes? That being said, the biggest critique is you underestimate people's love of power and their desire to gain and keep power and lord it over people. And that's not wrong. That's a good critique. And so my paying lip service to subversive innovation is saying that we have to be constantly be happy warriors in this regard and not trade off our moral sensibilities in the process. Because you're absolutely right that the powerful, they have a very different set of principles, which is, you know, the ends justify the means. And yeah. that really causes people to sacrifice any kind of other moral sensibilities along the way. And it makes for asymmetrical warfare. And that's why I say, therefore, we have only technological and political means to fight this war, this war for peace, if that makes sense. Sam sounds yeah. paradoxical. No, no, the happy warriors, I first heard that from either Jeffrey Tucker or Steve Horowitz. In fact, actually, no, it was Steve Horowitz. I met him at ISFLC one year and we were talking and that was the term that I heard him first use it was the idea of a happy warrior is, you know, is the person, you know, positively looking to fight against <laughs> that, that which is against us. Yeah. Yeah. So in your book, I love the chapter layout, by the way. It's, it's very, very clever. You have these like, your chapters are easy to remember because there's a number involved in the chapter number that you're talking about. And one of chapter five is called Five Disruptions. The governance, which is the state, finance or banking, enterprise, the corporation, aid, the welfare state, and then defense, the military industrial complex. Of all of these, you're basically saying that these are temples to power. These are very sort of things to disrupt. If I can, if I could say that that's what can be and should be disrupted. Are those in any particular order in your mind? Or do you feel like they're equal? Do some threaten more than, than another? I mean, which of these temples, as you're calling them. And honestly, I think that metaphor is very apt. It's not just like you randomly pulled out like, oh, they're temples. Like, let's just call them that. Like, that's very... People worship these institutions. Are there any that are more powerful and harder to, to tear down than others? They're all hard. They're all hard. Is any harder than the other? And, and there are probably more I could add, by the way. But sure. It seemed but like it was chapter five, so you couldn't. It was chapter five, so I couldn't have to cram it all into five. No, no, no. I mean, it's, it's like those really are the five main ones in a lot of ways. Sure. Governance is a big one. Governance is probably the biggest one if I had to choose. Okay. If you can resolve decentralized governance, governance instantiated, the other instantiated temples have the highest probability of being changed in some way. Mm. That being said, you know, so people worship currently. And this I want to acknowledge, I think people who have, and I, you know, I'm an unbeliever, as I, I told you. And so thank you for having me on the show. And thank you to your, your faithful listeners, to listening to someone like me. 
but I really want to give a lot of credit. And I think people of faith deserve a lot of credit in the kind of organizations and structures that provide moral teaching. Because I believe, and I have noticed, despite not being a believer myself, that we have, as participation in organized religion has gone down over the years, what has increased is a tendency to worship in the church of state, Mm -hmm. okay, which is, or the church of politics, which is to say that we tend to think of government as being like God and government as having the power to be, you know, the fixer in chief or the solver of social problems. And that sort of secular religion is one I'm trying desperately to to militate against with my writing. Yeah. But that's not to say that some in particular temples aren't very strong in their own right because they they really have their own incentives built around them. The welfare Mm -hmm. state is one, you know, which I would want to replace with a, a condition of widespread markets and mutual aid and mutual aid associations. I think there are a lot of reasons that that would be better. The other tough one is, you know, we have textbooks that say national defense is a public good, right? (laughs) It has to be provided. And and there's just tremendous failures of imagination in every single book about the way you provide defense services. And I want to challenge that. And I think, you know, disruptive change is going to have to dislodge the military industrial complex, particularly as the world is changing in this very strange time of where unipolarity is going away and globalization is starting to fracture. Yeah. I think I would have picked, if somebody were asked me the question I asked you about these, you know, which one might be the hardest or maybe the most important to bring down first, I would answer would probably be the, the finance, the banking, because you have, and, and I know you probably know this pretty firmly, like you eliminate something like the Federal Reserve, which is literally like, if there's any temple, like physical temple, that might be it, Right. You eliminate the Federal Reserve and you can't have the wars that we've had. You can't have corporate welfare, pretty much. If you really want to have a welfare state for the destitute, I'll give you that and the roads, and then we can live with it at that. That's my compromise when I tell people. Um, if that's really what you want, you got it. You've persuaded and, me, by the way. That's What's that? You've persuaded me, by the way, to argue that it's really important to dismantle the, the financial complex that it originates uh, in the, yeah. the Federal Reserve. And in some sense in Congress, because the government and the Federal Reserve are joined at the hip and that people try to say otherwise, but it's absolutely true that they that they are joined at the hip. Well, the other thing, the other thing that makes me a little more confident in that is that you have crypto on the horizon. And as much as look, I don't I'm not as into, and I say into, I mean knowledgeable of blockchain technology as as you are and other people that I know. But what I do know and can foresee with crypto happening is that there is an end in sight. Now, that might be a couple decades away. It could be three years away for all we know, depending on you know historical circumstance, or I guess future historical circumstance. But I don't see in this list, like at this point, I don't see crypto solving, well, other than the fact that the ripple effect might happen, but I don't see crypto solving national defense. I don't see crypto necessarily solving the governance. And I, and I know that there are ways in which crypto and decentralized technology can do this. And I'm not saying those don't exist, but the easiest way to see crypto disrupting the temple is the temple of finance. And hopefully it'll ripple from there. But like that seems like the first thing it's going gonna, it's gonna to get. Yeah. No, I think that's a really good point. And 
the more I think about it, the more I think you're right. I mean, there's a natural constraint on the behavior of the state that certain kinds of, I mean, which is why those, you know, chartered banks, free banking, why the progressives in the progressive era in 1913 created the central bank because it was a lever of power. And later on, you know, during the age of guns and butter with Nixon, had to get rid of the gold standard in order to really start printing money in earnest to finance all of these Mm. shenanigans that have created so much waste, fraud, and abuse ever since. That is certainly true. So the question becomes, either you can go the subversive innovation route, which is the creation of Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies as an ecosystem, or you can go the route of obliging the political class to preserve somehow through constitutional means or whatever, trying to preserve a system of a gold standard, free banking, and so on. Mm -hmm. That strikes me as less likely than some technological means that allow people to be more sovereign in their financial dealings. Yeah. But I don't know. And if we found a way, like if we went through some sort of financial collapse and reconstituted the gold standard and dismantled the central bank or changed it in some way that that allowed it to be checked as a power, that would be good. Yeah, no, I yeah, clearly agree with you on that. I want to talk a little bit about your personal journey with respect to the... Let's see, the subtitle here is Mission, Morality, and Meaning in the Age of Crypto. So that's the subtitle. I've got the book here. Talk a little bit with me about the morality. Now, you're obviously here talking to a, an audience that is going to be predominantly, maybe not, I don't know who's going to you know, see the, your name on our title and be like, oh, I want to go listen to Max Borders talk to the Christians. But you know, our core audience is going to be believers, people who follow Jesus, and we have a certain morality that comes from our belief in the God exercising authority through Scripture, through Jesus, through the church. What has been your personal journey? Because your book uses, I mean, it pulls from a variety of religious traditions that are yeah. that are non-Christian and even, you know, of course, Christian. And, yeah. and you even allude to things and you're, you're pretty well versed in, you know, the broad strokes of Christian theology. So what has been your personal journey and, and how does that play into what you're writing? I think my personal journey is just honesty in the way I perceive the world around me. And in, I think I was, I was about 12 years old. I was raised in the South. You can hear it from my accent to be, you know, Protestant. And I guess, you know, the form of Protestantism that I was raised in, and we, we went to different churches and everything. My, my parents were divorced. So, you know, whereas my, my dad's family might've gone to the Baptist church, my grandmother was a charismatic Christian, like speaking in tongues and things like that. And then my mom and my stepdad at the time, you know, when I was a teenager, they they took me to the Wesleyan church, the Methodist church. And, you know, but about 12 years old, and I still wanted to participate with them even after I'd, I'd sort of lost my religion, I guess you could say at 12. And it was just really, you know, I look back on it, it was really simple. And that is that that journey for me was was I was just, there was this profound sense of, I was reading a a book about the universe and the scale of it, and it made me have doubts in my Mm. faith. So that was sort of the start of my journey. And then I became a rabid objectivist in college and rabid atheist. And I thought, you know, that, 
that is there uh, another type of objectivist? <laughs> I don't think so. Actually, yeah, there is. The, the, uh, <laughs> no, I, I've met very, I've met nice objectivists, but when you meet them online, that seems to be the right adjective. <laughs> yeah, Craig Biddle is a good friend of mine, and and I I just I think the world of him, and he doesn't tend to be rabid. We we argue about things, but that's what makes it interesting. Sure. Yeah. But um, as I've gotten older, I've come to realize so many of the values, so many beautiful and important values of organized religion and of a religious practice beyond just the organ, you know, the, the organizational aspects. Mm-hmm. Um, and that includes the Christian tradition and my admiration. In fact, I, my partner is also the mother of my child is Jewish. And so my daughter's Jewish, you know, cause it's matrilineal. And so I've really gotten into understanding more about Judaism, getting more into the mm. old Testament, the Torah. I love doing the Passover Seder. It's such a beautiful story of liberation. Like I'll start crying if I talk about it too much. You know, I love this idea of Tikkun Olam, which is this idea of healing the world through through active practice to identify needs and and see things broken about the world and try to try to heal the world. You know, there's things like that in Judaism and in the Judeo-Christian tradition that are beautiful and are being lost as we sort of collectively go into the gutter of what I would call postmodernism, frankly. Mm. Postmodernism and critical critical theory sort of represent the intellectual movement around, you know, sort of denial of traditions at one level of description. Yeah. Traditions and practices that we might not understand why they work, but they're nevertheless beautiful and important. And then the level above that, you know, science and commerce. And I can tell you in a minute why I talk about levels. It's in the book, chapter eight, which you saw how I try to show those Mm -hmm. levels. But my philosophy is adjacent to that of what's called integral theory. So I I believe it's important and wise to look at traditions that have come before us and to identify the wisdom in those traditions. I also will admit that some years ago, over a decade ago, I had an peak experience with psychedelics that opened my mind and my eyes to certain kinds of religious practices, you know, understanding the sacred, the difference between the sacred and the profane, and really this idea of the ineffable and the noetic as species of knowledge. This made me less, I guess you could say, rabid about my atheism and more open to different traditions and what is beautiful and wise about them. And so just to button this up, I don't want to bang on too long about it, but I am finding that in my investigations of these other faith traditions, including Christianity, that the beautiful aspects can be woven into an overall doctrinal worldview that can recommend itself to the secular. So when if I were to hand someone who I know is a Christian, the decentralist, which I did with you, right? And I said, here, read this book. But you know what? You probably have so many insights already locked in because of the beautiful tradition you belong to. But there are people who were born 20 years ago, 30 years ago, who don't have any access to the beauty and wisdom of your tradition. And this has to be repeated over and over again. Hence, mission, morality, and meaning. You know, this Hmm. is a real attempt to create a secular scripture of some kind for people who don't have their own faith. Because... Hmm. I just think that so much of morality is being lost as the structures of moral teaching have been lost. People are trying to contrive their own moral systems in ways that I, I think are 
dangerous. And what they're doing, as we mentioned before, is locking onto this idea of the church of state. And that's not good. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I think it's a, it's a, I don't want to use the word clever, but it is a very unique way to be somewhat attractive to a number of people who would read this and be like, wow, I, I don't have meaning or sort of self-evaluate and kind of see themselves realizing that they are, I don't know what the words are here, but like wishy-washy, they don't have any sort of core foundations or anything like that. And that, you know, wherever they end up, wherever God leads them, they can start, especially with with something that's a lot more grounded. Because I mean, even if I wouldn't use the same metaphor and maybe framework that you would in some of those those chapters that are about meaning and morality, you're not leading anybody outside of behavior and ways of being that are going to be contradictory to God's will for somebody. Good, and good. I, I hope that. So, well, and, and again, I mean, I'm going to caveat that statement with like, I didn't, I'm not calling to mind as I'm making that statement, every little thing that you said. So, but in a broad sense, like you're not creating little violent terrorists, right? Like, okay, that's <laughs> one extreme. That's one extreme. Like you're not, you're not creating people who are militant toward those of faith. You're not creating people. So like, there's a world where the people that are not Christians, that are not anything, they're just kind of meh. They're just like, yeah, I'll just figure this out as I go. That you are giving them some sort of structure, which they could be attracted to. And so in any case, all that to say, you use certain metaphors and you're a lot more comfortable with a broad set of metaphors that help give structure to the morality and meaning that I personally, I was like, whoa, that's a lot. And you've been able to integrate that together. That's something that I haven't been able to do. And you know, I admire your ability to do that. I do like your whole little pitch there where you're like, hey, you know what? You have a beautiful tradition that is working for you and that is really good. So it's good to see that that's sort of the way you approach a person who already has a faith tradition, someone like me, someone, you know, like we have a few common friends in similar ways, rather than sort of subversively, you talk about subversion. It's like, you're not trying to subvert their Christian faith and be like, well, look, you're really wrong here and I want you to do it my way. No, not at all. And in fact, you know, who knows? I may... I may end up belonging to another faith tradition again at some point. And I, I respect and admire so much about these traditions that they have certainly informed my worldview by this point. I will also say that I, I no longer consider myself an atheist, much less a rabid atheist. I would consider myself an agnostic. That's probably something for another show because that gets us into deep philosophical territory yeah, sure. quickly. But I do think that at the very least, if people are experiencing what you might think of as a hunger for God, that at the very least, if you can't get that and you don't want that, that we need to hunger for community mm-hmm. again, and that we need to hunger for morality again, because morality is really agentic, which is to say it allows us to navigate better in a world of greater sovereignty without the structures of violence that people believe, you know, that the the thin blue line constitutes, for example. You know, the idea here is that the more we're good to each other, the less we're going to need law enforcement, you know, externalized law enforcement Mm -hmm. of any kind. That starts with teaching kids, but it also means daily practice. And I want to just really quickly emphasize that point, because I think this is the this is the critical piece of the morality chapter, which is number six. 
right? Identify the six fears. And that is, we have a tendency in the West, and this, this includes people of all faiths, because we're also products in many respects of the Enlightenment, okay? The Enlightenment treats morality as abstract rules, right? Something that you appeal to, you pluck from the air from time to time in various contexts. It's like, oh, what, what's the right thing to do at this time? Let me appeal to my ethics book, which would be, be the worst, but also, you know, the ethics of, mm-hmm. of moral reasoning, let's say, or, or whatever external force you can imagine that would constitute some moral theory. That's a very Western conception. So another thing I like to do, and some of the reason I bring in some of the more Eastern traditions, I think there's also a lot in the different Christian sects that recommend this as well. But the idea of practice, the idea of moral practice, that morality is a daily conscientious practice in thought, word, and deed. So you can find this in the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, Pantalanji, or I forgot how to pronounce it, but it's it's from, you know, the Yoga Sutras. It's like ancient India, you know, it's written in Sanskrit 2,000 years ago, right? There is also, you know, the Buddhists have this idea of day active daily practice. And of course, certain Christian subsects do as well. And I think to the extent that they don't, it's a problem that we have to treat morality as an active daily practice in the same way that we would have to practice music or karate or anything that we want to be excellent at. This is, in some sense, goes back to the idea of the virtues that comes via the Greeks. That is sort of like what I'm getting at, but also the Eastern traditions involve daily practices too. So that is what I hope to emphasize more than anything else with that morality chapter is practice over abstraction. Yeah, no, that's good. You're right. Even in the church, there's a sense in which we we prioritize belief over praxis, over practice. And those are two things that play together. I mean, belief is really important, but also, you know, you're not going to be a changed individual if you don't, you know, like put what you're doing into practice, even if it's simply practicing prayer, practicing reading your sacred scripture, sharing a meal with others. You know, you also have like liturgies in the church. You know, there's a lot of modern worship situations in Christian Protestant churches that is not very structured. And that's like on purpose, but it's also, I don't find it useful. You and I talked about this offline about liturgy and how important and critical it is to have some sort of liturgy that provides structure and meaning. And, and you know, what you're calling out here is that our lives need that. And, you know, that's sort of in some ways part of the purpose of your book. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. And honestly, I don't know if I would have ever said that five years ago, but I'm certainly mm. persuaded now. And part of that is the influence of the Eastern traditions that I've been getting into, as well as some of the the Judeo-Christian thinking and stuff that's going around right now, even that's mm-hmm. enjoying a resurgence through stuff just like, you know, Jordan Peterson or Jonathan Pajot or, you know, any of yeah, these right. famous practitioners. You know, Jordan Peterson has up to this point been a little standoffish in, in terms of his firm commitments, but I think he's since come to embrace full-on Christianity now as a man of faith, and he's making no bones about that. And I appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah, at least philosophically. I mean, I guess I do listen to him fairly regularly, and I don't really hear him talking about it too much directly, but there's a presence of mind in him 
that mm. is very, I would say, Jesus influenced at this point. And, you know, the comment I was going to make is like, Jesus is going to be around for a while because we all just can't all stop talking about him and figuring out like, what is it about Jesus that influences our lives in a positive way? You know, we can complain about the churches throughout history and Christians throughout history who have not done very well at the reputation game. But when you actually get to Jesus himself, it's like, there's a lot here. And, you know, it seems like you're coming to, you have been coming to see some of that and even in, incorporate that into your, to your own life. No doubt. No doubt. What's interesting about, you know, what I'm trying to bring across is Jesus was much more about practice in terms of his moral teaching. He showed you the way to be good yeah. rather than telling. He didn't tell, but he showed more. And this, this show versus tell is, is really what practice is about. And to the extent that Jesus is an exemplar rather than a doctrine is, mm. I think, really important feature of Christianity that works and is powerful. Well, Max, we could keep talking, but this has gone longer than my normal episodes and, and, and somewhat on purpose and somewhat because we just keep going on and on and on. This has been great, man. I really appreciate you coming on. Where's your preferred place for people to buy your book and any other places they can find you online, Twitter, website, all that? I wouldn't say it's my preferred place for people to buy my book, but I have sold my soul to Jeff Bezos. So you have to find <laughs> it on Amazon. <laughs> if, if people wanted, uh, absolutely wanted a, a book and wanted me to send them one, they're welcome to reach out to me directly and I'll mail them one. Okay. You know, but yeah, otherwise buying from Jeff is, is the best way. <laughs> That's all good. Uh, where can they find you online if they want to reach out? Yeah, you can find me at social-evolution.com. You can okay. find me on Twitter at socialevol, short for social evolution. Evil, social evil. And you can find me on Facebook by my name, my author profile or my personal profile. Awesome. Well, thanks for joining us, Max. Thank you, Doug. I really had a lot of fun. Yeah, same here. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com. 